Today's guest said that when her son was born, she experienced flashbacks of being hunted by the Nazis. But how is this possible? It was spring of 1997, and she was living in Massachusetts. We'll find out in just a minute. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. I'm very pleased to introduce to you today's guest, Dr. Tammy Botner. Dr. Botner is a pediatrician with over 20 years of experience, and today she joins us as the daughter of Bobby Botner and the author of Among the Reeds, a true story of how a family survived the Holocaust. Dr. Botner, welcome to Mind Talk. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Now, I I would like for you to explain how it is that you could experience flashbacks of a time in which you did not live, of experiences that you did not personally have. How is that possible? Isn't that strange? It It was really one of the most scary things that's ever happened to me. Um... As you said, it was 1997, and I had my first child, and he was healthy, and I was already a pediatrician, so when I brought him home, I really wasn't as nervous as most new moms are, because I had a lot of experience taking care of little children. But when I got him home, I started having these incredibly real feeling um almost like waking dreams or flashbacks or, you know, some kind of experience where I felt like it was happening to me in real time and I had these really terrifying um, experiences thinking, what, what, if, what if there were boots pounding up the steps? What if we were being hunted? Where would I hide? Where would I keep my child? What would I do to keep him safe? And it was, it was a really bizarre and terrifying experience and eventually I realized that those must have been the feelings thoughts and experiences that my grandmother had had when she gave birth in 1940 to my dad because she was um, in Belgium at the time it was uh, at the dawn of World War II and um, she brought a newborn baby boy home and uh, obviously had uh, a, a terribly difficult time. Three weeks after my dad was born, the Nazis invaded Belgium. So I didn't know what to do with that weird thing that had happened to me. And it wasn't until a few years later when I started to learn about something called epigenetics that I um, I began to think that perhaps this wasn't just just musings or thinkings. This might have actually had some kind of a genetic echo that I inherited from my predecessors. Now, you, you know, as you describe it, uh, it, it sounds supernatural. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, yeah. Let me just say that again. As you describe it, it, it sounds almost supernatural. It sounds like it's just not impossible. It's, it's not possible. And maybe it was something that you were, I don't know, maybe you had read a book or I, I'm sure that's what some people are thinking. You read a book, you saw a movie. Yeah. You really were more anxious about being a new mom than you realized. Yeah. Well, you know, and it might have been um, partly that. Um, but, um, you know, there are studies now that show that 
survivors of the Holocaust have alterations to their genes. And specifically, they have alterations to the genes that control stress hormones. So it, on some level, that's not that surprising. Once you realize that genes can be modified, it makes sense that someone who lives through five years of incredible anxiety and stress and difficulty would have some modification to their genes. But what's even more interesting is that we now know that those modified genes can be passed along to subsequent generations in that modified state. So that's work that's being done um, in various places, but one of the big ones is in New York at Mount Sinai Hospital. And researchers there have actually identified a change, a genetic change in Holocaust survivors and in their children. I don't think it's as simple as I inherited my grandmother's memories. I don't think that happens in that sort of um, very specific way. But I do believe, and there's, there's um, evidence to support that, that I've inherited something. There's some kind of genetic echo that came down through the generations. And perhaps because of circumstances at the time, I had a new baby, I had seen a movie or whatever, it all sort of clicked into place. And, and I, I don't think it's as simple as nature versus nurture. And in fact, one of the, the most fascinating things about epigenetics is, is that it's that the environment does cause changes to the genes. So it's a real, it's a real marriage of those two experiences that results in some changes. The story that you tell in Among the Reeds is, is truly, it's written, first of all, I have to say, with a great deal of grace and, and passion and compassion. Why is this such an important story? Why was this such an important story for you to tell? Well, it, it was an important story for me to tell on a personal level because this is what my grandparents and my dad actually went through during World War II. And as Holocaust survivors are getting, um, you know, this, this, we're so far out from it now that um, not very many survivors are still alive. In fact, mostly it's just child survivors that are still alive, my dad being one of them. He was only uh, two years old when he was sent into hiding, and I, I tell that story um, in the book, he was sent into hiding by himself. So it's really important to tell the stories because those people are not going to be around that much longer to tell them. And if we don't learn from the past, if we don't look around and, 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 and remember what happened, then, then shame on us because terrible things happen and we don't want to repeat those things. And, you know, it's really strange because when I wrote the book, um, the political times were a little different. I, I wrote the book last year, and um, right after it was published, all kinds of things started changing in this country and around the world. And um, some of the things that we've been seeing with the rise in hate groups and white supremacists and all these fringe hate groups that are suddenly showing their faces on the city streets and, and being vocal you know, I, I never expected when I was writing the book that the book would be as pertinent and as timely, unfortunately, um, as it actually turned out to be. 
Well, I have to tell you that as I was reading it, there was such a chilling, there was almost a chill that went through me as I read the description of what your uh, ancestors, what your grandparents were saying as Hitler came into being. Can you share that with the audience? Yeah. So when Hitler was first um, elected chancellor in Germany in 1933, the country was very divided. Germany was a divided country, and there were most people thought of themselves as being liberal, as forward-thinking, um, you know, very cultured people. But there, there was a big division in the country, and the disenfranchised masses actually voted Hitler in. Most of the people, um, when, when Hitler was voted in, were appalled, and they thought, this is a buffoon, he's an idiot, it won't last, he'll be gone, He's, he's speaking madness, but it's just going to be temporary madness. And, you know, I, I am sure as I'm talking, um, people are thinking, oh, that sounds vaguely familiar. You know, it's, it's, it's very chillingly similar to what we have seen happen in this country in the last year. It, it, it really is. What was it like for you as you began to realize post the, the publication of, of Among the Reeds, how similar the circumstances seemed to be, did that bring up anything for you in particular? You know, it was, it was terrifying to me. Um, in August, when that Charlottesville rally happened, yes, and, uh, you know, as for, I don't know, I, I live, you know, in the Northeast, and to me, I could not have been more shocked. I could not have been more shocked that that, that was actually happening. It seemed like it came out of the blue. And... When I watched it on TV and I saw, I don't know, I think it was like 20,000 people, if I'm remembering correctly, marching in the streets, screaming Nazi slogans, brandishing swastikas, and saying things like, Jews will not replace me. I have to say, I was absolutely terrified. And I thought, is this even possibly happening in 2017 in, in the U.S.? Like, it felt that felt like a flashback to 1935 Germany. I mean, you know, who are these people? Where did they come from? And how is you know were they always there? And is it just the current administration's um, policies that are allowing these people to suddenly feel confident enough to to come out? I, I don't know, but but it really it struck such a deep chord in me. And I, the one good thing I will say is that in response to that rally, um, a few weeks later in Boston, there was a huge counter rally. And I think something like 50,000 people showed up on, on the Boston streets and marched against white supremacy. And, and that was just a wonderful counterpoint um, to, you know, to what we had seen in Virginia. It is indeed true that the times are quite challenging for many people, and I certainly that's putting it very, very mindfully. Tell us about your father being sent away at, at the age of yeah. two. What was going yeah. on? So, so in um, in when the Nazis took over in Europe, they very systematically started passing laws that limited Jews rights. And it wasn't, um, it, it was very gradual. It was always like one more step, one more step, one more step. 
And it, it was done in a very chillingly well-thought-out way. So people lost their ability to shop in certain stores. They, they lost um, their right to ride on public transportation. Then they lost their jobs, and their kids were kicked out of school. Then they lost their homes. They, they had to move into ghettos. You know, it was just one thing after the next. In 1942, they, uh, they forced people to start wearing a, uh, a star, a yellow star on their clothes that had the word Jew written in French, Juif, on their clothes. And at that point, the next step was that they, the Nazis started going into people's homes, businesses, factories, wherever people were congregated, and arresting anyone they could who, whose, um, whose documentation showed that they were Jewish and sending them away, deporting them. And 99.9% of those people would never return. It's, I'm saying all this because it's important to understand what was going on when I tell you what happened next. In that time and place, it was very unlikely, if you were Jewish, that you were going to be making it through the war. And my grandparents knew that. And they were, um, at that point, the parents of a two-year-old child. My dad was two. They also knew that there were resistant groups who were working to hide Jewish children to try to save their lives. So my grandparents made the unbelievably, unbelievably difficult decision to send their child away into hiding by himself at age two. Which is And the reason right. they did that is that they anticipated that any day they would be picked up and arrested and deported. And they were desperately trying to make sure that if that happened, he wasn't with them so that he would at least have a chance to live. Tammy, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will pick up right here. Botner, author of Among the Reeds, continue with the story of your dad at the age of two and what his parents chose to do in order, to hopefully, to save his life. Jews were being arrested and deported, and there was a network that was working to hide Jewish children in various places, and they, um, they made the decision to send my dad away. Um, there was a very and Belgium was a um, was one of the the best places for this kind of underground hiding network um, it, during the war, and um, what happened was a 
uh, a woman um, who was in her early 20s. Her name was, was André Goulin. She was a Belgian school teacher, and she had been recruited to work for the Belgian resistance. And so one day she came to my grandparents' apartment and promptly just, you know, picked up um, my dad, who was a two-year-old kid, who didn't speak um, French, by the way, um, and she spoke French, so she was unable to really speak to him, but he knew enough not to talk. His parents had told him, don't talk, because he spoke German and Yiddish, and it would have been extremely dangerous out on the street or in the train to speak those languages, so he was quiet. And she picked him up and took a train out into the country and brought him to a convent. And in the convent, there were nuns who were hiding Jewish children in the basement. He was brought down into the basement where it was dark and it was cold and it was scary, and he was all alone, and André Goulin passed him over to the nuns and then left because her job was just to be the, um, like the escort, the, the person who brought the kids into hiding. She didn't actually stay there. And then he spent um, six months in that convent. After six months, he was so despondent and depressed that he got sick and the nuns thought that he was dying. So they contacted the resistance and they sent him back home. He spent a few weeks back home with his parents where he promptly became perfectly healthy. And then once again, because things were escalating and it was so dangerous, my grandparents sent him away again. And that time he went to a different convent where he spent two years. So he actually spent a total of two and a half years before the age of five by himself in hiding within, in two different convents and estranged from everyone he knew. Right. So it was um, 1939, and um, my grandmother was 17 years old, and she, ha- she, her father had um, had uh, kind of had a nervous breakdown, and so he wasn't living with the family anymore. He was hospitalized. So she was um, the eldest child. Um, the, her mom and three kids were living in Belgium, and, and they um, they were trying to make ends meet. They uh, started a bakery, and uh, she had. My grandmother, you know, as a teenager, her job was to go and pick up the baked goods on her bicycle every morning and cycle the baked goods back to the bakery where her mom sold them. So she did that, and um, she uh, then worked in the bakery. And and, um, apparently my grandfather, who was 26, 27 at the time, was one of the customers in the bakery, and he was infatuated with her, but she really had no idea uh, who he was. She was completely disinterested in him, um, wasn't paying attention to him. She was a moody teenager. She was sort of in her own head a lot. She just was resentful that she had to do this and she had to do that. And then at one point she actually was living across the street from her mother, and in the middle of the night a man came into her room, and so you know she had to run away from him. And I think that scared my great-grandmother so much that when my grandfather approached her and asked if he could marry Melly, the 17-year-old, my great-grandmother was so overwhelmed with, with not knowing how to keep her unruly teenager safe that she said yes. And so my grandmother was, was told, she was, she was working in the bakery, and her mother said to her, there's going to be a wedding. 
and sort of half listening, she said, oh, yeah, whose wedding? And her mother said, yours. And that's how she found out she was getting married. I think on that note, as we all sort of gasp, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Dr. Tammy Botner, pediatrician and author of Among the Reeds, the true story of how a family survived the Holocaust. We'll be right back. recommend there's there's so much uh that's in in the news nowadays about people going back and researching their history and there are i don't know half a thousand websites that encourage you to sign up and and search do you recommend people do that if they don't have an awareness of their history you mean like the genetic websites yeah yeah like finding out what um you know where your family was from and what ethnic origin you are and all that exactly yeah um Sure. I mean, I think it's pretty interesting and fascinating. I don't. I don't see. Um, I don't see any downside to that. In fact, I think um, we've probably all seen these these things on social media where people who um, who perhaps thought that they disliked a certain ethnic group and they say, "Oh, you know, uh, I'm okay with being anything except for that." <laughs> and then they find out that they are partly that, right. you know. Uh, I think that's awesome. And I, I think that, if anything, just um, shows us that we're all connected. We're all, you know, humans are humans. It doesn't really matter where you're, you know, where you're from or what religion you are. It's probably not even true. It's probably that, you know, if you go back enough generations, you, you're something other than what you thought you were. <laughs> you know, so I, I think it's actually great. I haven't done it myself, but um, I probably will at some point. Well, I think it's time, certainly now that you've completed Among the Reads. <laughs> and I'll find out something totally new. I'll have to write a new book. <laughs> there you go. What, what was it like for you, though, as you were researching and talking with your family members and getting this history? Did you find yourself experiencing anything akin to post-traumatic stress? You know, surprisingly not. Um, I, for so many years, had kept everything having to do with the Holocaust as far away from me as I could because I I knew that I would have a very strong emotional response. If I saw a movie, read a book, um, I would get very upset for a very long time. But as I started to do the research for the book and talk to, to primary sources and watched documentaries and read books and articles and everything and looked at pictures, which can be extremely upsetting. Um, I think to some degree I made peace with it or um, 
I don't know, it, it lost its ability to elicit that kind of strong emotional response in me to some degree. I, I think maybe just immersing myself in the material for a year kind of took the edge off a little bit. And so I feel like that's been a good thing for me. I have a little bit more resolution for my own um, my own feelings about what happened. So sometimes it sounds like the knowing actually helps to heal the not knowing. Yeah, I think so. It's almost, um, you know, like confronting your demons and um, allowing yourself to sit with them rather than, you know, pushing them away, I think can help us to heal and to move through that. At least that was my experience, and I, I think that that makes sense. How would you like people to use among the reads? What what were your goals yeah. for writing this book? You know, a couple of things. One is I would love people to read this book because it's an incredible story. It is the story of a family. It's a story of courage and resilience. And it's an incredibly fascinating tale of near misses and, you know, good luck and good decisions. And I think it just reads, um, as, as read, many readers have told me they read it in one sitting because they couldn't wait to find out what happened next. So that's one level. It's just, I think, a great read. But secondly, I think, as we alluded to earlier in the interview, there are so many um, bad things happening right now in the world to immigrants and to um, minorities and we're just seeing a culture of hate uh, rearing its ugly head again. And I would love people to read this book and take it as a wake-up call to make sure to stop and squash all those kinds of things from happening. Because we've seen what happens before. We've seen what the end game of that kind of situation is. And I would just encourage people to really read this and get inspired to go to that rally and and protest hate and vote for people who uh, reflect the kind of political views that you believe in. Dr. Tammy Botner, where can people learn more about the work that you're doing with this book? And I know you're a pre- pediatrician in, in uh, Massachusetts. Where can folks, I am. Find, where can folks yeah, find I'm, out more? Yeah, so I have a website. It's um, TammyBotner.com, no spaces, just T-A-M-M-Y-B-O-T-T-N-E-R.com. And you can find out more about uh, background for the book and how to buy it. It's also available on Amazon as both a Kindle book and a paperback. So there are lots of options. There are lots of ways for people to learn more. Yes. Wonderful. Tammy Botner, I, I so much appreciate the work that you've done in this book. It really is quite the read. It really is. Once you've started it, it's kind of hard to put it down. Among, <laughs> among the reads, the true story of how a family survived the Holocaust. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mind Talk. Thank you. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. 
Mind Talk is available to you on demand by going to mindtalk.org. That's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. You can also download the Mind Talk app from iTunes or Google Play, or you can go directly to iTunes and sign up that way for the free Mind Talk programming. If you would like to be in touch with me directly, and I'd love to hear from you, I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's program or any program, you can send an email to Pamela at MindTalk.org. That's P-A-M-E-L-A at M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And folks, remember always, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. Thank you.